and welcome to the Turtle Tracks Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Van Hooker, and I have with me today uh, Cameron Kim Dawson and Bobby Herbeck, the, the producer and screenwriter of the original 1990 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. Thank you guys both for being with me today. It's amazing. Hey, Thank Brian. So much fun. Thanks. Especially for the uh, 30th anniversary of the film. Yeah, indeed. It's been a ball. Uh, you know, we had hoped that, that the whole world would come out and, and um, see the movie again and we'd come, go to comic cons and all that sort of stuff. But obviously that's on all, all on hold while Bobby and I are sheltering in place. So, yeah, I see yeah. that there was a, a, an effort by you two to have a bunch of events planned for this year, but I'm guessing most of those have turned to digital uh, to some degree? Yes. Virtual. We're in a virtual world like everybody right now. But... I know that we were going to do uh, WonderCon, got canceled, as you know. Then we're doing San Diego, got canceled, but they are going to do a virtual San Diego Comic Con. Oh, cool. So I'm hoping that we're on, on the dais there. I, my last word was they got 900 people to pick from, but they don't want to miss the opportunity of the 30th anniversary of Ninja Turtles. So I, I think we might, might be in the mix there. We'll, we'll know in a week or so. They'll, they're going to put a big announcement out. It's just a shame. Built up for over a year to get ready for this year. And this virus couldn't have been last year or next year. It has to be the frickin' 30th anniversary of Ninja Turtles. Are you kidding me? Anyway, I'll be all right. It's just, so, <laughs> but you know what? Everybody, and Kim knows, and you know doing what you're doing, Brian, everybody's gotten so creative online, especially performers and, and, and people like us are there every day doing something and it's just like a stream of water and they've dammed it up and the water is going around another way. And I think that the time is good for us right now, as far as the social media goes, because I, that's worth what's everybody else watching. Oh yeah. MSNBC and Fox news. I don't think so. Yeah. They're watching this. Yeah, well, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll, st we'll still love the movie of the 31st anniversary, so it'll be fine. <laughs> Well, we are going to have, there's going to be a showing. We can't say who or when other than there's going to be a two-day uh, national screening, 1,200 theaters in uh, the fall. That we can say. Oh, awesome. Very cool. I look forward to that. That's great. Yeah. Uh, so I want to get started. I know you guys have told the story, but I hope you haven't tired of telling it, uh, of, of how the, the movie started. And uh, I, I think the story starts with you, Kim, and I know we owe a, uh, a debt of gratitude to Gallagher. Is that right? Well, yes. um, yeah, yeah I, I, I'll clarify that. Um, my partner, um, uh, God rest his soul, was a guy named Gary Proper. Gary was a surfer from Cocoa Beach originally, and I met him in the early 80s when I was working at Showtime, and I was the executive in charge of production and uh, director of original programming for Showtime, covering comedy and among other things. And I was covering the Gallagher shows. And Gary was managing the Gallagher at the time. And we struck up a friendship because we were both, I, when I grew up, I surfed on one of Gary's boards. Uh, Gary rode for Hobie surfboards. So I had a Hobie, a Gary proper model when I was a kid. So when we, when we got, um, you know, met one another, and this is in like 1981, um, we became instant friends. Gary was a big collector of comic books and wherever they'd go, we're on tour, uh, Gary and it would always go to a comic book store. So it was in 87, I believe, early 87, that he was touring with Gallagher in uh, Detroit uh, at the Fox Theater there. And um, uh, he walked down the street. I think the place is 
the Midnight Vault or someplace like that. It's a comic book store there, uh, right, right near the Fox Theater. And he found the original comic book, uh, the black and white, you know, the first issue. Right. Maybe they yeah. were in the second printing. So um, he sent it to me overnight. He called me that day all excited that this is going to be our first motion picture. And that's, that's basically what happened. He sent me that, that comic. Uh, the next day, we called Mirage Studios, and they put me on to Mark Friedman over at Surge Licensing, who uh, had just signed a deal with them maybe two or three weeks before that uh, to represent the property, to represent Mirage and the Turtles to the world of toys and other you know, merchandise and licensing. Oh, so this all started before the cartoon even came on, on the air. Oh, yeah, yeah. The cartoon didn't come on until the end of 80, uh, 87, uh, Christmas of 87, before, toy, before the, the toy convention uh, in February of 88. Uh, they produced that comic book as, you know, with, in conjunction with, the, with Playmate Toys. Actually, Playmate was a big part of it. And, and um, so Kevin and Peter had signed up with Mark Friedman and Mark made the deal with Playmate. And then with, you know, Playmate made the deal with more Kami and Wolf to make those, those first five uh, cartoons. Mark Friedman being the uh, man in charge of licensing. Surge, surge licensing. Surge right. licensing. Yeah. Just okay. to clarify. So you guys knew it before the tur like before any turtle mania really hit, you know, other than the comic book, you guys were like this, there's something to this thing. Well, you know, um, I, I'll let Bobby speak for himself on that sure. because I know he, he, he had, he instantly got it. I did, I felt I did too, but Bobby got it like, whoa. Yeah. And I, I happened to be, Kim called me and uh, he lived in Newport. I lived, as I said earlier in Long Beach and we met in the middle and an in and out burger in Westminster. And I said, there should be uh, a little plaque there on the grassy knoll. We sat out on a grassy knoll because it was just a step-up window in and out. It wasn't inside eating or outside eating. So we sat there, and he had a VHS, and he had some books, comic book, and he had this stuff and showed it to me. And I, in the, during that time, was writing a movie for Golden Harvest. And Kim's genius was, he tells Gary and Gallagher, I got a buddy that, well, I knew Gary. He said, I got a buddy that's writing a movie for Golden Harvest who makes, you know, the Jack, the Bruce Lee, Jackie Chan movies. And that's the company that should do this film. They've got the best martial arts guys in the world. And you put them in the costumes and loop the voice, dub the voices, and then you got your Ninja Turtles. So I'm just paraphrasing. So he brought it to me and I, just your instincts. It's just one of those, his instincts, Gary's, Gallagher, everybody's, even Peter and Kevin's instincts, I'm sure. Just, you just knew there was something magic about it. It was just so odd. And, and many times over the years I'm interviewed, because a lot of people will go, oh, so you wrote the Ninja, you, you created the Ninja Turtles. They go, no, 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 I wrote the first movie. And then I got to a point where I just go, yeah, okay, next question, because I just don't want to go through it again. But uh, they... They, uh, they, we knew that they were going to be, had a great shot. And it was, this is, the story's all about timing. Our timing couldn't have been more perfect. The timing of everything that had trip wires along the way, but the timing of the, the young people were ready for something new. There weren't these, there weren't iPads. The kids were watching TV back then, which you were probably a, a young boy then. You watch TV, and this was their show. They just, I say the kids discovered it. 
Parents didn't know what the hell they were watching until the toys started coming out. Well, that goes to my boss at Golden Harvest, Tom Gray, because Kim gave it to me, and I went to Tom and tried to pitch yeah, it to There him. was a lot in between there, Bobby, wouldn't you say? We pitched it to – we probably pitched it to 30 different – No, no. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I went to Tom Gray first on my pitch, and he goes, Herbs, don't bother me with this Pinjin Ninja crap. Just finish the movie I'm paying you to write, you know, uh, department store. And so, but I kept circling back. In the meantime, I'm wallpapering Hollywood and pit going around pitching the story, and I'm being laughed and sniggered at out of meetings, and some of them calling my agent saying, who's the guy smoking pot that came in here with the turtle thing? <laughs> and my age says, I don't know about the pot, but the turtle thing is real. And uh, it's just a, it's a case of we didn't give up and no one believed us, but a few, only a few people got it. And right. then, go ahead. Well, there was a natural aversion to um, live, you know, live action movies based on comic books because both Howard the Duck and uh, Garbage Pail Kids had gone in the tank. Right, big ex expensive films that hadn't that hadn't performed at the box office. So there was, you know, and, and Hollywood is is designed, uh, in my opinion, is designed to say no for the most part. They, you know, every, they like to build things from it from within the studios and the and the big the big independent production. They like to develop stuff internally, and you know, they have found it themselves and. So we had that. We sort of had those natural barriers that were that were working against us. But um, you know, to go back to, to touch a little bit on the Gallagher thing, because I think there's some misunderstanding about Gallagher's role in the Turtles. I know it, over the course of time he took a little credit for it. Um, the fact is that Gary, Gary, and he did. They probably toured and and did about 150 performances a year. Now, by the time Gary found the comic. Um, I was doing comedy specials with Gallagher for Showtime, um, and we would do two two specials a year of the of uh, out of those 150 shows that he performed. Many of which were in Las Vegas. But as he went around the country, Gary looked at comic books, and by by the time he found the comics, he had already licensed, um, I think, um, uh, Scout War Shaman, which I think was a, a, a I think it was a kitchen sink. Um, uh, publication and he had uh, Cadillacs and Dinosaurs, Xenozoic Tales, which was from Dark from Dark Horse Comics. So he had he had acquired the rights to about half a dozen different comics. This was not this was something he kept doing and he kept saying, "Let's turn these in." And th they were they were difficult to to get studios to buy into it. But when the Turtles came, it became even more difficult because it seemed so outrageous the title in itself was outrageous people like bobby said people go tinjin ninjin what you know so well, they say stuff like they go for turtles yeah and, and they talk yeah they talk and 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 they do martial arts yeah what's their name Raphael. don then they start going <coughs> sniggering Raphael, donatello and they uh -huh. go yeah okay listen <coughs> excuse me just a minute <laughs> Uh, l listen, we, we got another meeting coming up, but th thanks for coming in with this, you know, and uh, good luck with that. And that yeah. was the, yeah, that was the pervade. And, and I would constantly go back to Tom Gray at Golden Harvest and he'd go, Herbs, I'm going to throw your ass out of this office. If you bring up that ninja pinjin turtle shit again, I'm, I'm done with it. Leave me alone. And then we went and had a drink one night and I remembered he had two kids at home. One was 12, one was 10. Now it's a, 
It's on the TV as a cartoon. And I said, just go home and ask your kids about it. I'll never bring it up again. When I got back home that night, I have a message from him on my recorder call, which was now in the Smithsonian, a recorder call answer machine. <laughs> and it's him there. Hurry up, Tom, give me a call. They really were not good machines. But he said, give me a call. Get your buddy and get him here and meet me tomorrow. I want to talk about this. And that got us to the next step because his kids said, Dad, get with it. It's like what's happening. And that was that opened the door, the first door. Right. Well, I got to say, like, I, I know for me, so I'm a fan of Ninja Turtles since I, I honestly can't remember a time before. I grew up in, I was born in 85, so I grew up with it all along with the right. cartoon and, and that first movie, especially. Um, and I've become a fan of every iteration, some of the bad ones, some of the good ones. Like, I like everything, or at least I find something to like about everything. And your movie, in particular, to me, is the best Turtles thing ever, including the comics, anything. I think it's the right blend of humor and seriousness. It is, to me, the, the Turtles have never been better than that 1990 film. And I say that without exception. It is excellent. That is so nice. Just a minute, I got somebody wants to say thank you. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> this is going to be great. Dude. Thank you, dude. <laughs> really? That's really cool. Is it on upside down? It's upside down. And for those who are, this is only a podcast, so I'll just let the audience know Bobby lost his mind. Okay, good. It's only a podcast. Yeah. I got Leonardo on upside down. That, that doesn't sound right. It was a mask. Okay. <laughs> hey, thank you for, for that, though. Because no, it, it's it, true. I, 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 and I, like I said, I love everything, but that movie is, is the perfect blend of like humor and it, the real people, like the real characters in that movie, they're three dimensional. Like, for the most part, me and I would have them sort of simplistic takes on them with one dimensions and there's a lot of depths in yours like like michelangelo like there's a lot of like underlying things about his personality in that movie like there's a part where donatello comes to talk to michelangelo and about what happens if splinter's not here anymore and michelangelo just averts talking about it. he's obviously by and he lets it go like there's so, so much subtle character work in that movie that i just love about it well you know i i think you're you're right thank you for that that's really a tribute to both, first of all, Bobby and and, um, and uh, Todd, who who uh, wrote some of that with Bobby. Bobby basically hammered out the story and most of the script, and then Todd came along and polished with him. But really, uh, Bobby's characterizations, based on what Peter and Kevin had done. But then you, when you add Steve Barron into that, because Steve is a is the quintessential storyteller, you know, and and he's not. He's, he's a complex character unto himself as a director. He'd started as, you know, he has a, a director a background in art direction. So he really understands the visual medium, but he also understands music and the power that it has because he directed mu uh, music videos for Michael Jackson, among other things. But uh, that, and then, and then one of his close friends is Brian Henson. And between, between that combination of people, Brian has a sensibility that is, you know, obviously sprung from his dad, but with with that combination of people bringing the actors and the puppeteers and all the technicians involved, it had to be it had to be an, an amazing team of people working together to craft those those elements to make those actually make the turtle costumes work and kind of emote those those um, the feelings that all the characters had. So you know, but it all starts with the story and the words. To be honest. I never, Brian, I never 
and Kim was in TV a lot, a long time too. I, I used to be the king of the warm-up guys in, in Hollywood by, by accident for many years. That's where they bring a, my job was to keep the audience's ass in the seat while we did the show, right? Mm -hmm. And keep them, keep them laughing and their, their energy up, but not be funnier than the show that's going to follow. But uh, I learned to write at the Norman Lear Company. They, they encouraged me. I started punching up scripts, and then they just they drugged me along. And it's just amazing, like I was saying earlier, timing. I was in the right place at the right time when that happened. Kim and I met each other in some great circumstances in a faraway place in another land. Right. And there's, just, there's always these connections to these things. And um, I, I just think, like I said earlier, it was just, it was it was the timing. We even to the point, and then I'll shut up. To the point of there was a big uh, tug of war on when to open that movie. And usually, as you know, it's Christmas and summer. And they ended up smartly. I had said to Tom Gray, "Why not spring break? No one opens a movie at spring." And he, that's what he said to me. No one opens a movie at spring break. And they did, right, Kim? And Kim yeah. may have more to that, but that's when they opened at March thirty. It, we were, we were, it was us and Pretty Woman at the box office, and we were duking it out. <laughs> it's different yeah. audiences, too, which is good. Well, there, uh, there, there were, that, that, that manifested in an in a, uh, a ad campaign that after the first couple of weeks, because we were one and two uh, going in, for, I think, for four weeks in a row, five weeks in a row. But by that time, um, there was sort of an ad campaign that was going back and forth where, uh, it was both ad campaigns were making fun of the other movie or having fun with the other movie. I shouldn't say making fun because they, they were both performing and um, against all odds because Pretty Woman was was um, was ripped by the by the critics as well. You know, it was not it was not particularly well received by the by Hollywood critics. So, oh, that's yeah. cool. I didn't know. I'll have to go back and look at those. I, I did. That's a piece of history I did not know. That's cool. So, Brian, what was your favorite turtle? It, always Donatello in every iteration. And I, I have a Donatello question for you. Sure. So your Don, what I like about your Donnie is different than every other Donatello. Don, your Donatello is still the smart one, but he's smart through humor. He's a smart ass and he says a lot of lines that are funny, but definitely not Michelangelo funny. He's different. And I, I'm curious what influenced that because, you know, other iterations of Donnie are less grounded. He's building a spaceship out of, sewer parts and things like that of car parts and things <laughs> not on planet earth but with your donatello he's he seems real and he's hilarious and i just i'm curious what went into your donnie because it's a unique take and it's my favorite take of donatello and i've always loved donatello yeah well i just think when for me when you're when i start the writing process and, and you know i have material to go on i didn't have to start from page one and have nothing and i spent uh, quite a bit of time back in Northampton with, with uh, Peter and Kevin. I had to get the story together for the movie that they would sign off on, okay? So they certainly had input, but for me, everything starts with character for me, and I just like, like you said, three-dimensional characters. Not just, here's a guy, and here's a, he's wearing purple, and do that, but if you, and, and I think all four distinct personalities came out in the, in the Turtles. Uh, for sure, and and you're you're mentioning that now. Michelangelo, uh, Raphael is me to a T. Hot-headed, pain in the ass, crazy person, uh, just fly off the handle. But Donatello to me was just kind of 
kind of uh, just the, the, the smart guy, you know, that saw smoking it and just drops these little, these, these little subtle little comments that are really bright, smart, and witty. And it shows that there's more to him than just being the brains of the group, you know. And there was a bit of leadership about him. Because I'd say Donatello was the quietest of the four, you know, when yeah. you stacked him up. He was the thinker, you know. You know, so my, what, my, one of my favorite scenes is the bathroom scene in the bathtub, you know. When Raffi, you know, is, is, is there in, in Donatello, is it, wasn't it Donnie? Oh, it's Leo is talking to Leo, him. Leo, I'm sorry. Donnie, Leo, makes it, Donnie says it's a Kodak moment. It's yeah. Donnie in the door, which I love. That's just Donnie when he says it's a Kodak moment. I yeah. mean, just, he just these throwaways that he did. And that's just the way I, that's the way I imagined him, you know. My favorite joke is when he pulls out the bag of marshmallows and says, don't worry, I came prepared. Yeah, <laughs> but this one I was going to love. I was going to ask you because uh, you know we're we're doing this reading. I think you know this on the twenty third, right? On Wor Turtle uh, World Turtle Day, we're doing a cast and crew mainly cast reading of fans' favorite scenes. And oh, cool. so What we find out? Yeah, go to uh, YouTube. Go to TMNT nineteen ninety. Uh, TMNT movie nineteen ninety. And Judith has done a, a little teaser on there. That's where we're getting these hits. And then we'll do some subsequent teasers to fill it in more. But we're going to get together and have a virtual Zoom reading on the Internet. A pizza party is what we're having. Oh, very yeah. cool. And we'll That's be great. doing the, what, we've, what we've accumulated as fans' favorite scenes. But see, you drop one in and went, okay, there's one I haven't heard. I just right. love that joke. I mean, there's like I also love you're claustrophobic and a bunch of other funny lines, but that marshmallow joke still makes. Yeah, me that's great. No, that's great. Well, the, the, the I think what, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is is with Casey Jones, with Donnie and Casey are going at it with one another. You know, in the, in the in fixing the, the truck. Yeah, it's great. Fixing the truck. I that because that dialogue is so crisp and and it just it's sort of you know I think the thing about the about the the turtles and particularly that scene is the way teenagers are. They want to, you, you, you want to go at one another and, and it's no holds barred. Right. Um, and that's, that's sort of, um, you know, depicts that, that character of, of teenagers as well or better than any other scene in the movie. I think. I was, yeah, that's I, a great one. It really yeah, is. I, Brian, I was also very much, cause I'm a, I'm, I'm a hopeless romantic and I'm a easy crier of stuff. And I always wanted to get the point across with Splinter's connection. And, and I wanted without beating it over the head, but a, some messages to, to young kids that came through Splinter and through the things we saw. And also, as we've said in our other interviews, even though people don't know the work that goes in it, nor should they have to think about it. But uh, And Kim, unfortunately, has heard this so many times, but I... First of all, I listened to Oriental music on a headphone while I wrote it. It, it. Just I needed that. And then I looked at Star Wars probably 50 times and looked at the battles and realized that Lucas, one of the many geniuses of Lucas, is there was a reason for every battle. It wasn't just, okay, we're four, seven minutes, we need to have a fight. And so every battle in that movie, every in, in the Turtle movie, there was a theme, so, for lack of a better word. There was a reason for that, not just yeah, time okay. to kick ass and fight. So, yeah, and, and yeah. there was always a lesson. You know, Splinter was there, and when he wasn't there for a lesson, they were really confused. That's yeah. why they run out to the country. You know, to get their 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 
air out and get the head together. Plus, they had one of their their uh, their boys that they thought was was dying on them. So just just want I want to have an emotional connection too, not all laughs and action. Well, I mean, like that's I, like I said, I think that's why the movie holds up is because all the characters have this really well-rounded, like Raphael is the angriest, but he's also clearly the most sensitive. Like there's a lot to the character that's like, to all these characters that show there's a lot of facets to them. You know, I'm curious, and this is just my perception, but I'm curious how, how true it holds up. So my view of the show, of that movie is that it's, you know, the structure and the seriousness of the Mirage comics, plus the jokes of what was in the cartoon at the time. I'm curious, did the cartoon influence your writing at all or was it I'm, I, I don't know I'm just curious you know what I gotta be honest I didn't watch the cartoons okay I just I just got to be with Peter and Kevin looked at the at the graphic comic books and and, and lengthy talks with them took copious notes it took a long time to get a story that they both agreed on I mean it wasn't like you know and I got to a point where I could tell when I walked in a few days later, to, I'd given them the new treatment, and I could tell them by their body language when I walked in at breakfast in the morning, if Peter was looking down the floor or away, I knew Peter didn't like it. And But Peter and Kevin, two different personalities, night and day. Sure. And and they, they didn't all, they just, a lot of times they didn't agree. And I said, how did you two ever get a comic book done? But that's part of the creative process, just like anybody. It's just sure. like a TV show, a movie, or a music group. You know that they all hate each other, but yet they go on stage and they kill it. So, and I'm not saying Peter and Kevin don't like each other. They had a they had a very, I don't know about now, but they had a very special relationship and a great admiration for each other. You know, and one was stronger than the other at what they did. They admit that in a documentary I saw. You know, one didn't like to color; the other one did. You know, one liked to do the drawings. I think that was Peter. Kim might know, and then the other one liked the colors. So it was just interesting the, the mix and how they did this. I think it's that adage of how steel sharpens steel. It's like, you know, the, the combativeness maybe generated something that is... Just the, uh, giving them credit, just the genius of what they came up with. And to, to the story I recall, and I asked them, because everybody does, how did this come about? Uh, and they said, we were just channel surfing one night, and said, boy, there's nothing but crap on TV. Let's just knock it around, kick it around, and see what the most craziest ideas we can come up with. Now, where the turtle part came, I can't tell you. But then they are the Renaissance name and the martial arts, and it was just this great, unusual combination. That was a genius of them. And there was, a, there was other geniuses involved in this. Steve Barron, to me, was a genius. With the way he opened the movie with the manhole cover and just giving you kids a peek. Because oh, wow. I know you were at the edge of your seat. And you went, God, there they are. And it was just him peeking. Yeah. And he goes, oh, man. And he goes, damn, and shuts the cover. And you go, oh. And I get goosebumps. Because then he hits the music, and then you hear him uh, kicking, you know, kicking about, and you see their silhouette in the sewer. You still don't see him yet, and you're yeah. still getting closer to the edge of your seat. I just think it's brilliant what he did. I, I interviewed him as one of the first uh, of these uh, podcasts I did, and just uh, talked a lot about how he's just such a great visual storyteller. And I mean, like, you had to hide a lot in shadows, so the technology holds up really well. Like, like it works so well. Listen, I, and then I want Kim, because Kim can get, fill in a lot there, but, you know, I looked at the movie, what, a week or so ago? And I looked at it last April, well, but I looked at it a week or so ago, last week, and I went, I called the next morning, talking to Kim, says, and, and, and to every, our group, 
Uh, and I said, you know what? God, it still holds up. And I'm not bragging. That movie still looks good for its, it was way ahead of its time. What the Henson people did was phenomenal. And those really? actors in those suits, which Kim will tell you, but the story still holds up. And, and the action scenes, I just think it, it does. Still, that's why it's lasted 30 years. Right. Kim can tell you what they went through to do this. But, you know, we're, we're, as, as Bobby mentioned, we're going to do this pizza party later this month. But we're also in the, in the process of uh, creating a series about all the stories behind the scenes that will allow uh, the actors and uh, Steve Barron and, and other uh, to, to actually tell the story of how they came to the movie. And obviously, Bobby and I are going to be a big part of it. But, the, you know, it was sort of like... Um, if you think about Murphy's law and how anything that goes wrong will go wrong or anything could go wrong, would go wrong. It yeah. did uh, throughout the process. It was so difficult because there were so many moving parts and um, uh, it was just, it was just one of those circumstances where you thought at any point in time, it could get undercut. I mean, and I think this is, this is, it, it may not be big public knowledge, but three weeks before, or, not not three weeks, six weeks before the movie was scheduled to start, um, we got a call from uh, 20th Century Fox, who was scheduled to to distribute the picture, and because Tom Gray had worked at 20th Century Fox as the head of uh, foreign sales at one point, and uh, Leonard Goldberg, who was the head of the studio at that time, had been fired, and um, Barry Diller took over and said. No more turtles. He, he wiped the slate clean. He took all of the stuff that was on the, the slate that Leonard Goldberg had greenlit, and they were, they were all uh, canceled, every one of those films. And um, the proviso that, that Raymond Chow had made to Tom Gray was that you absolutely 100% need to have U.S. distribution. If you don't, there's no movie. And at that point, they'd already spent all the money on the costumes and on building the sets and so forth. And commitments to actors and so forth. So almost half the budget was spent before the movie started. And um, it was, or committed. I want to give it all away now. No, I know. But that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's one example of, of how it, and it took, it took about three weeks before the deal with New Line got put back in place to recover the film. So yeah. it was, it was, uh, you know, it was like that. It, it, there were so many aspects of the movie that could have, undermined it and made it not be what it was but somehow or another there was just this thread that kept weaving through that said no no let's keep going a lot of starts and stops yeah, yeah. lightning in a bottle sure so we're gonna do a book and we're doing this this series uh about Bobby what we're talking about and and even today i mean even it's still this whole coronavirus thing told kim we gotta still have another chapter to go Right. Because oh, yeah. this, as we said earlier, this has changed the dynamics of what we have on the board to do this year. Right. This, we didn't have this reading, pizza party reading thing. This was Judith's uh, idea. She, right. she was wondering how to put it together. So we joined forces, which is, and it's a great idea. People are real. The response on Instagram and stuff is phenomenal. They're, everyone's psyched, you know. So For we sure. got Warner Brothers is, is behind us. So. It's just good feng shui so far. By the way, move that pillow. You're going to screw the feng shui up, Kim. The pillow over your shoulder. When you're done. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Okay. Sorry about that. Uh, Bobby, you know, I've heard you say before, in another interview um, that the Marx Brothers were an influence on their, um, on their, on their, uh, the way the turtles interacted with each other. I'm curious, uh, 
Who's who? Oh, man. I'm going to guess Leo Zeppo, but maybe I'm wrong. Who? I was going to guess Leo Zeppo, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, no, I think Rafi's more uh, – uh, let's see. Yeah, I, well, yeah, you think who you want. I have to think about that. <laughs> it's been so long. Sure. You know, I mean, to me, Gracho was the wisecracker, you know, and who was the, who was the biggest wisecracker in the movie? Mikey. I would guess Donnie. Well, maybe, uh, but I would think Mikey would be more heartbroken. Well, Mikey was more like, like, well, you're probably right. Donnie was more, had, had better zingers. Mikey was like, uh, like uh, more frivolous, I suppose. He was horrible yeah. for me because he didn't have yeah. to say a lot. And he got a lot out of saying a little Donatello. Probably did. right. Because Harpo was, you know, Zeppel was the con man. But I, I would say Leo, for, more for me for Zeppo. Oh, okay. For, huh? Gracho for sure to me was uh, uh, Rafi. Okay. Yeah, I, I just, I, I just, I, I'm really a fan. And it's my buddy Pat Proft, who you may have heard of, Pat's with the Zuckers and wrote Naked Guns and Hot Shots and Airplane and stuff. And Pat and I we used to go do our comedy store night gigs, and then we'd go. And we'd go to the silent movie theater on Fairfax and see old movies with the guy still playing the organ. And we'd go at W.C. Field movies in Pasadena. And we just got into that world. Laurel and Hardy, my, still my favorite of the whole bunch. And then the Marx Brothers. But, yes, it, I'm glad you got it. It does have a Marx Brothers feel to it. Well, the know? movie is also littered with little Stooges references, which work in <laughs> so well. Yeah. I had I had one piece I wanted to put in there th that was in the first draft and Tom took it out but I, I was I we all have had doves in our backyard and one day I'm hearing the doves we had a, this dove would always doves would always come to our kitchen outside the kitchen window and and, and have babies every year when they leave they go whoa, 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 whoa. and I, one day I looked at my wife I said you know I think that's where the Stooges got that. That woo 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 woo. I think they were having lunch at MGM, and a dove flew by and goes woo 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 because it is the exact same sound. You know what I'm saying? Yes. So I wanted to have that in the in the picture. I wanted the guys sitting around kicking tires on things. I wanted more of an impression scene than just the one we got, and I wanted to put that in there with. Oh yeah, well let me tell you something, wise guy. Guess where the Stooges, guess where we got woo, 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 from some doves outside our window? And I, think, took it out. I think that was my introduction to the Stooges, I'm pretty sure. And I love them now, but I think that's where it started. Yeah, good. Um, you know, Bobby, you did an interview with uh, Dick DiBartolo last year. And I wanted to follow up on something that you'd said in that. Um, at one point you were talking and you'd said to him that uh, you're working with Nickelodeon about going back to the original Turtles. and for your comments, I don't know if you know this, have kind of turned into like this rumor online about maybe there's a new series linked into the show, anything like that. So there, I'm trying to find out what were you talking about when you said we're, going, we're talking to Nickelodeon about going back. That's to really Kim. Kim's the point man on that of going to Nickelodeon. And let Kim, pick up, pick it up, because Kim will tell you what the well, idea uh, you can You can say this. This is an idea that I've had for a long time. I believe the Turtles... Uh, particularly insofar as their banter is concerned and their their relationship would be fantastic art history teachers and that they could go to the museums of Italy and rip on one another's artwork, their statues and their paintings and their frescoes and all that stuff. 
and teach art history, but with the attitude of the turtles. I think it would be fantastic. And you'd have to do that in a throwback, in a throwback way, not the, not the new guys, because the, the new guys don't have the same sensibility. The new characters don't, and the new cartoons don't. Yep. It's um, so I, I don't know if it ever get traction with Nickelodeon, but that's that was you know we've been we've been having that discussion for a while. And we've had Brian, we've had a lot in this period, the last couple of weeks, and we we've had a lot of fans like you that are, are crying out, "Do a reboot! We go back to the old turtles." Yeah, you know, I'll fi I'll find stuff that's on because I've not been in the social media till this happened. I didn't know what was out there. Here's this whole line of people where's bobby herbeck did dude is he dead where is this guy why aren't these guys writing the uh, these other movies these movies suck we want to go back to the old turtles and i asked kevin eastman i had lunch with him in november what he thought of the new look turtles and he had a conversation with michael bay and they kind of had words and, and and kevin's like the rest of us he didn't like it at all I, maybe you've interviewed him but I say yeah. you don't cha you don't change with Superman and Batman and Spider Man and these maybe subtle over the years but very subtle. He's made them into complete other creatures, you know, and I think it's a shame. You know, yeah, I, 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 I have agree with that that they just didn't feel like like them. You know, let me hit you with a couple other questions because I know I don't want to keep you guys too long. Um, and for either of you, do you guys have any idea of what Shredder and Tatsu's backstory is? Because that's one thing I'm curious about. W where did that relationship come about? Well, Tatsu is based on a, uh, my sister was married to a very nice man from Japan named Tatsu, who lived in Houston. He was <laughs> a professor. And he was a real interesting guy. No, but not the bad, the Tatsu we see. It was just the name and there was some, he just was a yes boss kind of guy from, uh, uh, what, what was the yes boss? What, what series? The Hawaii, um, the, the remake, Hawaii Five O. Yes, Bulls. That's all that guy would say in Hawaii Five O. They tell okay. him, "Hey, Dano, go over there, you know, and break that guy's leg." Yes, boss. And he was kind of a yes boss guy to me. Sure. And just a person that I threw in. He, he was Shredder's henchman. Okay. Gotcha. Shredder's the Lord. Shredder's like, come on. He starts Vader. That opening shot of him from above. Yeah. It's like that's a steal. That's Darth Vader. But he was very Darth Vader. Vaderish, and he had to have. This was his right hand. This was his uh, henchman. It was taught, was uh, I thought he was more threatening than Shredder. Yeah, I mean, he seemed more level-headed too. And I'm curious, like, why did he go along with what Shredder was up to? But <laughs> Shredder signed the checks. I see. That's By the way, we we are going to have Mr. Sato is going to join us for the reading, which I personally am oh, thrilled cool. about. Because he fantastic. was really reticent to, to, to do it, but we got him, Judith Hogan had, had a lot to do with it. We got him on board, and I'm thrilled. Cause right. That's very he's cool. He's an icon. You can't have this without him, and I'm no. hoping we could get Tatsu on. That would be amazing. You know, you know, Bobby, I know, I know that you weren't involved in the sequels. I'm curious, you know, the, the world that you set up was different than what those movies became. It became much sillier and different. Right. Is when you were writing the first one, do you remember if you had any ideas for where you might want this to go? Should well, it sure. for the first I one? I had a conversation with the boss about it, but I, I'm not going to give out a lot because that's going to be in our book and in, in our, and don't get me wrong, and I want to hold that card a little close, but let's sure. just, it suffices to say because Kim was privy to seeing me have a meltdown. I was not thrilled that I was not involved in the sequel but I learned this was my first movie that got made 
Now, I've been in other movies as an actor, but this was my first write this and see it on a screen. And was it just like your first time as an actor and you go see yourself on a big screen, you just kind of slide down in your chair like this and go, oh, Jesus. When you see your... And this movie, when I went to the screening room to see it, the, the rough cut of it, it's just, it's a high I can't explain. I, I do, still do stand-up. There's no bigger high than a, a great show as a stand-up, but that is pretty damn equal to it. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think I lost your question. I got one yeah, off. I, 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 whatever you want to do is fine. Visions, we both had visions of what, what the, they could be, and I think that it was the... the choices for the second and third movie were influenced by yeah, a yeah. lot of different things that, that we'll talk about later, but I don't know that, that, um, uh, I was out before I was in Brian, in the business, the parlance of the business, because when, when you do a sequel, they got to pay you more. That's just the, it, it, even the writer guild says they take what's called your quote, your last price and they bump it up. It's like your batting average. You're paid by your batting average. If that would be the case really. And, the, Raymond Chow and his company had very, very short arms. And if he had his way, Kim, see, Kim and Gary had an ironclad con. They had their deal was done. They were smart. Well, what I we didn't did, have, we I didn't have sequel rights. Yeah, we optioned the rights in a different way. And, yeah. and, so it was and I did not have sequel rights, which I was saying, I came out of TV, so I nothing knew, I knew nothing about sequel rights. I looked at Tom Gray and says, but I am writing the next one, right? And he goes, uh, sorry, Herbs, and I was crushed because yeah, yeah. they went, are you kidding me? You didn't even want to do this freaking movie. I, I browbeat you into doing this movie, and now you're kicking me to the curb. So, Well, you know, let, let, let me ask you, and, and I, I don't need to know the intricacies of it, but I'm curious, like, you know, like I said, your turtles were a little more grounded. Would you have gotten, you know, alien brains and, and, and no. all that other crazy shit? Like, do you, know, do you guys know who Ace Duck is? Like, there's a lot of weird shit in the turtles. And I'm curious yeah. how weird it would have gotten. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> I, I would have grounded them more. I just thought they should, I thought maybe a dating, one of them dated. Because, you know, they had a crush on, on, if you saw it, it was subtle. I was telling the guys the other day, it was subtle, but they had a crush on, um, uh, Raffi had a, had a, Raffi and Michael really had a crush on April. And then sure. one of my favorites to see is when she's lying unconscious on their floor and they go, can we keep her? I love that. And I go, that's up to your imagination. Take it from there. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and there was, a, if you look at the last scene when they look down from the roof and, and Casey and April are kissing each other, you can see Raffi kind of just turn a little bit away. That's the way I wanted it. And that's the way Steve did it, that he was a little jealous. Sure. So I wanted to follow that. But it means Judith didn't get to do the sequel. I know. So it was just, and, and some producers got bumped and, yeah, I mean, here's the people that made it work. Why wouldn't you keep that team together? And well, I want, I'm sorry, but I want them driving a car even in the next movie. I know sure. we did a little truck scene, but I want them going to my driving school or something. I want them to drive a car or a motorcycle, but keep it more real. And, yeah, you know, know, it's a unique, like they said, that's the only one. Where, I mean, like, you know, the, the second one had the other mutants and silly stuff, but then the third one, it goes back in time and all that. And I was like, the movie that you, the world you guys established is not the world we end up in. So I was always wondering, like, what, what might have been, you know? Yeah. Appreciate well, it. just, you know what? This is the history of sequels, though, except for, yeah. for a few, except for Star Wars, you know, and well, Godfather. They, Star, Wars, Star Wars, George Lucas had a vision for the property that was, right. was extensive. 
and he had, you know, it was. Yeah. He had yeah, it all written out. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, with us, we were told so often that this movie was not going to work, that it was going to be a dog, that it was going to be, yeah. you know, fail and this and that, that thinking about a sequel was really, was really distant thinking. You know, it wasn't like, it wasn't like we thought, oh, well, we're good. Yeah, we, we should just write the, the story that would span those, those three films. And, and had we, had we, if we were to do it again, that might be the case, but. If you heard Dickie D's interview, and, and you know, yeah. I, a lot, I covered a lot of this, and, and Tom Gray, our, the boss, and I know I said it to Dickie, who I really dig that guy, so cool. But I told Dickie, I said, uh, Tom Gray was so nervous the week before it opened it. He just Herbs, I, I'm so afraid we got Howard the Duck on our hands. I said, you got a built-in audience. Howard, duck, Howard the Duck fell into the earth, didn't have an audience. And well, I, think, uh, I think the timing too, like, you know, you were so early, you started making your movie so early in the turtle mania, but by the time the sequel comes along, the audience well-established and yeah. you've got also like, I think, you know, the money makers in Hollywood, they're the ones who are thinking like, Oh, a turtle movie makes money. Who gives a shit what the characters are like? Let's just make a turtle movie. So well, that's Tom. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I think what Tom's philosophy was. Well, I think that, that more fighting, less story. But the b bottom line is that you'll, you'll, you'll hear more from this about, you know, if you interviewed Steve, you know uh, how dedicated he was to telling the story properly and, and match, matching the visuals to that story. And I think that's where the, the magic for this first picture comes in, in the, the, uh, the characters and their relationships with one another and how believable they are because... And I, I think that's a tribute to Steve and Brian in particular because the way they the way they cast the movie and with the particularly with the with the uh, turtles and the puppeteers they had this chemistry that you can't do with technology it's not it's not possible you had to have actual human beings and there you know it was a it was a whole um, no system. CGI there was no CGI then you can feel them you can feel those characters. Well, yeah. yeah, and that's and and they could feel one another. Believe me, inside those costumes, <laughs> they I spoke to uh, I spoke to Michelin Sisti recently, who was in the Michelangelo suit, and yeah. he gave me some stories about just being drenched in sweat while in those. Costumes. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, it was tough. It was a tough environment. Let me ask you my last question for each of you: Who's your favorite turtle, Kim? Michelangelo, I just wow. love him. Well, I love pizza too, but I I just felt like Mikey was you. Yeah, well, a little bit, but you know, I, I, I don't know. It, I just always have liked Mikey. He's Kim. I'm the one that wrote it. I mean, <laughs> I'm not Mikey. Hey, He's Bobby, Kim. yours is Raph? Huh? Yours is Raph. Well, I, I, my pat answer, just like if you watch Tiki B, is I love them all because without all of them, we're not here talking to you. Sure. And without you and the fans, we're not here talking to you. We're truly blessed. I mean this. We, we, I might have said earlier, this just doesn't come along very often, and to think 30 years later. So I love them all. I'm just saying, Raffi and looking at him, looking back and stuff, Raffi is me to a T. <laughs> I'm the guy to get, I'm a little man, five, and uh, I'm like Spud Webb. Now, there's a name from the past. The little guy who could dunk a ball, it was like 5'4. I'm, I'm a little guy. And a little Napoleon complex and Rafi, you know, getting pissed and going off, you know, and ready to kick butt, you know. So he was like me in that, give me your best shot. 
I, you may kill me, but I'm going to get one really good shot in, and it's going to hurt forever. And that's the philosophy for rafting. That's it. Thank you guys both. Uh, I, I, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for – I'm glad that you guys are out there now and embracing the fans and getting out – and all the social media and the pizza parties and all that stuff. So I'm uh, looking – there's a lot to look forward to with you guys. So I'm, I, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> Take Good night, Brian. Cowabunga, dude. See you later, Brian Hooker. <laughs> I love that. Bye. Bye, Bye. Bye Timmy. Bye, Bobby. Okay, bud.